Tim Haig reads books, presented by Tim Haig. In this edition, Tim visits Lord David Owen, former foreign secretary, once leader of the SDP, and a medical doctor, to discuss his new book, In Sickness and in Power: Illness in Heads of Government During the Last 100 Years. Lord David Owen has a reputation for not suffering fools gladly. However, when Tim visited him in his London office, he nonetheless talked in fascinating and almost indiscreet detail about politicians, including those he has known, and considers whether, if he had become Prime Minister of Great Britain, he himself might have succumbed to hubris syndrome. Hello, I'm Tim Haig, and this is Tim Haig reads books. I'm talking to Lord Owen, Dr. David Owen, as well, in his office in Mayfair. Lord Owen qualified as a medical doctor in 1962 and、uh, practiced as a neurologist until he went into politics. He was, among other things, the youngest foreign secretary since Anthony Eden, and later one of the founders and the first leader of the Social Democratic Party in Britain. He was sent to mediate in, for,、uh, in uh, war-torn former Yugoslavia, to the amusement of his political opponents, who couldn't see him as much as a healing presence. But he acquitted himself to universal acclaim and earned the respect of the world for his efforts there. Lord Owen's new book is *In Sickness and in Power*. Subtitled "Illness in the Heads of Government During the Last 100 Years." Lord Owen, this is a brilliant idea for a book. Why has nobody done it before? There have been some books actually written by doctors, but they've not really had perhaps quite such a wider canvas and being aimed at a non-medical readership. I mean, I've been at great pains to explain medical terms. Oh, you have, and、I. explain political issues for people because I'm running the politics and the medicine together. Yes, of course. That that's, that is your sort of USP, isn't it? You you are a proper doctor and a proper politician who's seen it all. So you you I mean, I, I often wonder you, when you meet because you've met everybody when you meet the political leaders, do you look at them and think, aha, I know what your problem is, chummy? <laughs> I try not to, but I've met some fairly extraordinary people in my time, and. I mean, I negotiated with Robert Mugabe for nearly three years, and between '97 and '1979, must have been a joy. It was difficult. I mean, he is a zealot. He's a very interesting combination of a Jesuitically trained Catholic who was still going to mass clandestinely in Mozambique while proclaiming and visiting China that he was a Maoist, and I. We have seen that, that conflicted personality and the zealotry、uh, emerge over the last few years, with tragic consequences for everybody. Leaders, political leaders, and you know,、uh, heads of state do tend to be of a certain age. I I wonder how far that it just doesn't go with the territory that they're going to be ill. Well, I think that aging is an issue because you're after when you have a head of government. Somebody making the correct decisions on a whole complexity of issues—it's a very difficult job, actually. And a lot of the decisions are on the margin, and getting them wrong can have very profound consequences. So we do see in history older leaders having quite disastrous things. You go right back in the early 30s in the Weimar Republic, Field Marshal Hindenburg, 85. There's no question that he had the Wool pulled over his eyes by Adolf Hitler. Hitler came to power through the machinery of the Weimar Republic. I mean, in in some respects, democratically, aided and abetted 
by an old man who hadn't really a clue what was going on. So how far does it matter? I mean, in a sense, we could just say, if, if this doesn't happen, then something else will happen. So what happened was, there was this leader, he was ill, he made these decisions. How, how much do you think that does matter? I think it matters a lot. I mean, take another ageing problem. General de Gaulle in 1968, when there were the student riots in Paris, was completely out of his depth. He couldn't understand it, and he almost got disorientated. He flew off in a helicopter to consult the uh, French army that was stationed in Germany in Badenburg and wanted to be assured by them that they were loyal to him. And he took his family because he was afraid that the mob might get his family. Now, he was quite disorientated. And the two people who saw him at the closest time, Gen- uh, President Pompidou, who succeeded him, and General Massou, all thought that was the case. Now, there were people who spun it as if it was a brilliant strategy to keep people um, on their toes, not knowing which way the general would go. But the honest answer was he was no longer really uh, capable of being president, and he resigned after losing a referendum a few months later. But at, in his prime, he was a formidable figure and a great leader of France. But you've got other, other leaders who were old and uh, very often ill who uh, performed astonishingly Churchill at a, a, an advanced age and under circumstances that would kill me. And, and you do a, a wonderful uh, piece on, on Mitterrand. One of your case studies is Mitterrand, who, um, according to you, and I believe you, um, discharged his duties really very effectively under appalling situation. Yeah, I mean, he, six months into his 14-year presidency, was diagnosed with cancer of the prostate, not just minor, it was with secondaries already in the bone. And for 11 years, the French public didn't know, and for 11 years, every six months, his private doctor issued a communique saying his health was fantastic. Because I, I mean, he, he, unbelievable in my, situation. In my mind's ear, I can hear Neddy C going, ah, the, the, the French are always covering something up. Well, the French do have a tradition and of, course, Mitterrand of doing so. covered up his, uh, his second family. Yes, I mean, secrecy is part of being president. Uh, president Pompidou was also ill, and with a sort of rare blood disease, and that was covered up from 72 to 74. And uh, it is unfortunate that uh, two features, leaders by and large do not tell the truth about their illness, and their private personal doctors lie on their behalf. Now, in fairness, the doctors have a problem. The Hippocratic Oath tells them to be loyal above all else to their patient. They have an individual relationship. The answer is that a private doctor shouldn't be signing public communiques about the health of their patient. That should be done by independent doctors. But of course, the, the, the head of state wants their private doctor to give the spin to their health that they want them to give. Now, well, you, this you, is a dilemma. You've addressed this question in the book. You, you know that uh, a pri- private physician has this Hippocratic Oath. But you've come down on, on the side of arguing that the, the public interest is that the, the, the people should know the, uh, the condition of, of, of the leaders. Yes, I think when the French doctors knew how seriously ill um, the Shah of Iran was, they should have told their president, President Giscard d'Estaing, I think they probably did, 
The problem was that Giscard d'Estaing didn't share it with his uh, allies, the British and the Americans. So the British and Americans were shut out deliberately by the Shah. Deliberately, he did not call in British or American doctors. He was diagnosed in 1973. He was uh, thrown out by the Islamic Revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini came in in uh, January 79. Now, had that not happened, had the Shah been treated, gone off to Switzerland, a regency imposed, you might never have had the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolution. And then I don't think you'd have had uh, the Iraq-Iran War. I don't think you'd have had Al-Qaeda. You might never have had it. Uh, 9-11. I mean, the, the consequences are profound of simply just not knowing that a head of government is ill and not performing very well. A similar situation happened with the first president of Pakistan, Jinnah. He had terrible, bad, advanced tuberculosis of the lungs, and he fought for early independence for Pakistan from India. Now, if... Which Mount Nehru didn't want, of course. Nehru didn't and, want. And, and the Congress Party didn't want. Didn't want. And, no, and Mountbatten didn't want. That no, wasn't part of his no, if, brief. That's why he swore his doctors to secrecy. If they had known, they would have... Uh, lung out the negotiations. They would have gone, actually, actually gave Mountbatten two years. He didn't have to come up with a solution until the summer of 48. He By actually, which time people would have known about Jinnah's uh, exactly. tuberculosis. So the whole issue of People this, like you would have spotted it. Well, I don't know whether I would have spotted it. Tuberculosis is sometimes difficult, apart from losing weight, quite difficult to diagnose. But no, I mean, his private doctor was sworn to secrecy, and when his doctor told him he had to give up politics, drink, and... Um, Smoking, he refused to give up any of them and pushed the accelerator on partition. And this, this was a Muslim who wouldn't give up drink and smoking yes. in order to secure a Muslim state. Yes, he was a very dedicated, very able man, actually. And uh, he genuinely believed that the Muslims required their own state. But I think history has shown that India has handled, I mean, apart from Indonesia and uh, uh, India has more uh, Muslims than any other state. I mean, it is a very large country with a very large Muslim population living happily with Hindus and Buddhists. So I think that the doomsters who believed you had to have ethnic separation of the Indian subcontinent were wrong. This is really sort of the great man of history theory, isn't it? it, it because if, if, we're, if we're arguing that, uh, that things might have been different if, if Jinnah's... Uh, uh, illness had been known. Are we not saying, I mean, we could say that there was a movement, a, a desire, a, a historical inevitability of a, an Islamic state uh, where, where... Yes, you've got to be careful about, uh, you know, Professor Hindsight. It's very easy to cast oneself in that role. Also, you know, the what-ifs of history. But, I mean, let's be more positive. Let's look at Kennedy. It's always puzzled me, how could this new young president make such a frightful botch-up of the in Cuban insurgents going into Cuba, the, the fiasco of the Bay of Pigs, and also a frightful mess of his first meeting with uh, Khrushchev in Vienna. And then a year later, handle Khrushchev and the Russian missiles, which we now know also had nuclear warheads in Cuba, so well in 1962 in November. Now, the answer lies that his medical uh, treatment... And his own medical condition was completely out of control in 1961. He was taking recreational drugs. He was having his doctors in separate compartments. He was on amphetamines. Dr. Feelgood coming Dr. in. Dr. Feelgood coming in and uh, giving him these drugs. Dr. Feelgood's injections also had steroids. So 
because he had Addison's disease where you need steroid replacement, and Kennedy's endocrinologist didn't know this. Dr. Feelgood was pumping him through with this. His own doctor was pumping him through with procaine for his back pain, which in the quantities she was giving him, I think, undoubtedly went across the blood-brain barrier. Anyhow, all that was effectively stopped by the end of 1961. They had some order amongst their medical care. The lady doctor was pushed upstairs, so to speak, and Kennedy was warned to stop going on taking amphetamine. He did, unfortunately, go on seeing Dr. Feelgood until uh, nearly his death. But I think he was taking those drugs much less, whereas before he met uh, Khrushchev in Vienna, he was having an amphetamine injection every day. I was grateful to your account of Kennedy's uh, illnesses because I, I tried to read that uh, book by Robert Dalek, which I found utterly undigestible. And, and you, and, and I wanted to say, did manage to uh, make the medicine and the politics very, very clear for, um, I think, the general reader, which um, helps us out a bit. Can I turn you to uh, a, a difficult question? And I'm going to tread on eggshells here and talk about madness a little bit. You, you, you cite an American... Uh, study that has suggested that 29% of American uh, presidents have had mental illness while they were in office, which seems an incredible number. It is incredible. It's a very serious study from uh, Duke University, and I think it's true. Two of whom had uh, bipolar disorder, what we used to call manic depression. That's Theodore Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Nixon was a definite alcoholic. Yes. And we know, of course, George Bush, W. Bush, uh, didn't level with the electorate, and they discovered only four days before he got elected that he'd had a drunken driving charge, where you may say that's not too serious. But underneath that was the fact that he'd been an alcoholic in his late 30s, early 40s. Well, you always are an alcoholic, aren't you? If you, if you have been, you might be a non-drinking one, but you're always I alcoholic. think you have to treat people who have got uh, an addiction as always potentially addictive personalities. And I think some of the problems of President George W. Bush, his inattention to detail and things like that, may well have its roots in some of the different personality orders and psychiatric disorders. Attention deficit disorder is an adult condition, not just a childhood Mm. condition. And I raise some of these questions because the sheer hubristic incompetence of President George Bush and Tony Blair, in conducting the aftermath of the military uh, invasion of Iraq is breathtaking for its incompetence. And it can only really be rationally explained by people who don't want to listen because they know. They know and are so certain of their own judgment that they ignored military advice to have more troops. They ignored political advice that they would lose their votes in the Security Council. They conducted themselves in a way which led to a total disaster. And we need to be able to spot this. Otherwise, we'll have hubristic uh, prime ministers and presidents leading us into further escapades. For example, Anthony Eden, at the time of the Suez crisis and the fiasco there, at least was ill. I mean, he had had a botched operation on, for taking out his gallbladder. This led to him having periodic infections of the liver, had a temperature of 106 degrees before he made, eight days before he made it, this decision, extraordinary decision for an Arabist to make, to have a clandestine operation with Israel. And he was also on uppers and downers, which is amphetamines and barbiturates. So the decision he took, which were totally out of character, were due to his medical condition. Of that, I have no doubt. But we never had an analysis of the Suez failure. So we never got to the real truth 
that he was on amphetamines. Oh, sometimes he was just too traumatized. Well, we may do the same over the Iraq crisis. They're trying to spin out and avoid an inquiry, but we do need to have an inquiry. We need to know what went wrong, not just for vindictive reasons, as some people always want inquiries, but actually to find out the true facts and try to avoid it happening again for genuine preventative reasons. You've used the term hubristic, and uh, you you actually almost want there to be a a recognised hubris syndrome, don't you? By which we don't mean that somebody's lost their mind, but they've... in some way lost their grip on, on yes. reality. I think we saw that in the last two or three years of Mrs. Thatcher being Prime Minister. I think it probably took place for Neville Chamberlain during the Munich crisis. And uh, I think it took place in the last two years, from 1920 to 1922, of Lloyd George's Prime Ministership. But, of course, this happens in, in chief executives and vice chancellors of universities and generals. And we should be very careful. Hubris is quite common. And what I think it is in part, is an acquired personality disorder. It comes with the office, the isolation, the building up, the feeling that you're not as other men and women, and you gradually begin to believe your own propaganda, and you live in this rather isolated cocoon, particularly now with all these security problems. And these people are developing the sort of super-confidence that the Greeks warned about with well, hubris, and nemesis has very frequently followed. Of course, what they're, what they're reflecting is that, they, that they, they, they are considering that nobody else is being asked to make the kinds of decisions they have to make, and it's a short step then to, to believing that nobody else could make those oh, yes. decisions. And they usually do make that step. And there was some of the rhetoric of... Uh, I mean, remember Bush flew in onto an aircraft carrier... Uh, called Abraham Lincoln, steaming off the coast of California, not off the coast of Iraq. And he was in a flying uniform, arrived on this, and on the superstructure of the aircraft carrier was mission accomplished. This was May the 11th, 2003. I mean, anything more hubristic, it would be hard to imagine, and complete and utter nonsense at the very time when they were being warned that there was a breakdown of law and order in Baghdad and the insurgency was already actually underway. Now, Blair didn't go quite as badly as that, but his own rhetoric was pretty extraordinary and pretty undiluted. So uh, I I, I think that we've got to be very careful about the dangers of this um, potential syndrome. Now, if it could be recognized by the medical profession, it would be much more likely for alert politicians and journalists that this sort of thing can develop in a leader, and they'd be much more cynical and skeptical about them. The funny, strange thing was that for a long period of time, the press in Washington and in uh, London gave these leaders a fairly clear run on... Tony Blair had a very good press for a long time, yeah. For a long time. And I think this is something we need to be alerted to, that actually Tony Blair got rid of the cabinet government right as soon as he became prime minister. There were two presidents, really, Gordon Brown dealing with the domestic and uh, Blair dealing with the foreign policy. But even more important, after the 2001 election, he got rid of the machinery of government. He got rid of those elements which bring in together advice from the Department of Defense, Department of uh, Foreign Affairs, the intelligence community. And you make a balanced judgment, which is also available to colleagues. All that was swept away. It was brought into number 10, highly politicized, and he was making all the decisions. He was, for a while, the president of the United Kingdom, and it was a disastrous presidency. What, then, are the the characteristics of 
hubris syndrome. If, if we're going to uh, make a start on bringing this in as a recognised uh, a recognised syndrome... Well, supreme self-confidence is the fundamental thing. The Greeks always attached a lot of importance to contempt, and they found that very present in those sort of leaders and something which they disliked intensely. So the refusal to listen to advice? Yes, and you, don't, you advice. don't need advice because you know what you're doing. Also, it's allied in the case of Bush and Blair to a rather fundamentalist Christian beliefs... And so you're almost in contact with your maker. Ah, you'll and be you judged by history or God, yes. rather than by your fellow man. And you're in dialogue with God, too. So the, uh, basically, this is an ancient sect. Uh, the pure can't lie. The pure oh, are pure. I'm, I think you'll find I'm a pretty straight guy. Yes. You mean, yes. More or less. You might have become... Prime Minister, you were uh, a very eminent politician. You were uh, obviously able and, and charismatic. How would you have coped? Would you have managed to avoid the uh, the syndrome, or would you? Well, I hope I would have. I, I think at times uh, some people accuse me of megalomania, and I think we've got to be open about that. And I am in my book. But I think that what are the features why a lot of politicians are not uh, hubristic or megalomaniac? The answer is. A certain cynicism, humour. I think humour saved Churchill. And I, there are lots of things to cite in Churchill humour. But I, I think that the fun I like best is Lord Allenbrook describing him driving up through France towards Belgium. And he kept on asking to stop at the Siegfried line. And I'm on the Siegfried line. They stop the car. Right, gets out of the car. And he opens his flies and has a pee on the Siegfried line to show. <laughs> I think that... The, the humour is certainly one. The other one is cynicism, which is quite helpful. I think cynicism was some of the thing that stopped Franklin Roosevelt developing hubris syndrome. But at one stage, into his second term, he wanted to get rid of the Supreme Court because it was a bar. He tried to pack it. He yeah, wanted he tried to expand to it from there. nine to fifteen. He? he was a, so realistic enough to realise that he'd gone too far. And he pulled back from it. So the other thing is a, a frank and friendly wife. Um, I mean, Clementine Churchill wrote to him in July of 1940 saying, you are impossible, you know. And I know for myself, my wife will take me on more than other people will. And your children can take you on too and flatten the ego. So I think these are all good things. But, you know, why do we have democratic controls? Why do we have cabinet systems? Why do we not allow a single dictator? Because we know the dangers. It's not new. Bertrand Russell talks about the intoxication of power. Lord Acton's famous dictum, all power corrupts, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. It is true. And we still make the mistake of allowing it to go unchecked. And Nixon was an alcoholic as president. Uh, Decisions were taken in the middle of the night by Kissinger and General Haig while he was upstairs comatose out of an alcohol. General Haig was also not a, a shrinking violet. But he wasn't a head of government, so but he was Secretary of State. <laughs> you remember he came in uh, after the attempt to assassinate Reagan and sort of said, I'm in control here. Actually, he got his constitutional history wrong. The Secretary of State was not in control. But there are... These are all things to watch for. I mean, we want leaders to be decisive. We want them to lead. And yet we are not taking sufficient account of the fact that they can easily get out of control. And we need these controls. One of them is to have independent doctors assessing them before they even get elected. Another is to have regular uh, medical assessments when they're in office. 
and a mechanism to get rid of them. The American Constitution, through the 25th Amendment, can get rid of a president in office. And it's a choice of Congress. It must be a choice of doctors. You don't want doctors setting themselves up as God and getting rid of particularly democratic leaders. That must come through a democratic process. But doctors must be able to engage with it, be aware of the dangers of it, have identified the system, and the physician who comes in able to call in experts on the functioning of the brain and testing of the brain and testing of cognition. On top of this, there's this question of drugs. The new drugs now that enhance the activity of the brain, which are given to children to help them with attention deficit disorder. You can bet your bottom dollar the politicians are already taking these now. We'll hear about it in 20 years' time. Politicians are the ones who take the, the high achievers people on the, you know, making big money on Wall Street or in London Canary Wharf, they're probably on these drugs. What they used to be was amphetamine and now is a modern drug. And they're ahead of the game. The Dr. Feelgood hasn't ceased with the death of Dr. Max Jacobson. There are Dr. Feelgood equivalents in all the capitals of the world wanting to make leaders feel more powerful, more energetic, stay up all night, extra sex. These are, people are peddling these potions. And we've got to be aware of the fact that high achievers are very often susceptible to their, um, both their drugs and their advice. Lord Owen, thank you very much indeed. In Sickness and in Power is published in Britain by Methuen at £25 and in America by Prager Publishers at $44.95. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com or Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.